Good morning, everyone. All right. Good morning, everyone. Yes, thank you. I know, Thursday morning, I feel like it's the tough day, but I'm so glad that you're here. As you know, uh, this is not Steve Carter. Uh, We wanted to kind of keep you guys on your toes. Uh, Steve will be joining us, obviously, in the second session today, but after the sons were shellacked yesterday, he needed more time to mourn, uh, to grieve. No, uh, we actually went to watch the game yesterday, and that was a, a great game. Um, today, uh, I, I want to just share a couple things with you, and um, I, I'd love to maybe just set the table before today's message, because today's message, I think for myself, and then later as Steve shares, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a turn in our teaching series, and we'll come back tomorrow But today, we want to think outward and what it means uh, to be ambassadors to the larger world. And today, this morning, I want to speak to you a little bit about the theme and the invitation of justice. And I want to just name and acknowledge that uh, this sermon might be a little uncomfortable. And it might be a little awkward. And I hope that uh, even if you feel a little riled up that you would not leave or, or stand up and walk out. Uh, I, I don't think that should happen, but sometimes I have learned, especially in the last couple years, we have been so informed by the larger culture, including media, that even when we hear preachers mention certain things, the other things impact the lens by which we see things. So even as I mentioned justice, it's possible that Some of you might take that word and go, oh no, what does this mean? Is he going to be an angry Asian socialist? Nervous laughter? (laughs) So what exactly are we talking about? So I just want to name that this might be a little bit uncomfortable, and here's the reason why that is good. It's because when we're speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, The gospel does two things. The gospel obviously saves us, but in saving us, the gospel comforts us, which is beautiful, but the gospel also disrupts us. It does both of these things. But sometimes, particularly in our Western lens, we are enamored by a gospel that comforts us, and we tend to resist a gospel that disrupts us. The reason why the gospel does both of these things is because we as human beings, we desperately need both. So my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would comfort you, but might also challenge and disrupt you in some way or another. And if the sermon really offends you, uh, my personal email address is daveburns at gmail.com. No, please don't email him, please. Email Steve, all right? (laughs) Now, a couple more things to set the table. The reason why justice, I believe, is an important issue, and the last couple days we've been talking about spiritual formation, and we're speaking about internal things that we need to do in our lives. The reflection, the, the, the introspection, the personal growth that we need to be doing, but spiritual formation, if it's always focused internally, eventually it will atrophy and die. 
Spiritual formation does both. It looks inward because of our relationship with God, but we're also called to engage as light and salt. And one of the ways in which we do this is our pursuit of justice. Not because it's politically correct, not because it's a cultural conversation, because Isaiah 61.8 declares, I, the Lord, love justice. Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you? To seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Now, clearly, there can be conversations and debates about what justice looks like, what biblical justice looks like in a broken world, but we should always acknowledge that the pursuit of justice is not a tertiary, uh, an elective for us as followers of Jesus. In other words, justice is not an accessory that we wear on season or off season, but it is part of our character. In fact, Isaiah and Amos in the Old Testament, what they tell us is that the pursuit of justice is part of our worship of God. So it's incredibly important. Now, the danger of justice, like many things in our spiritual formation, is this. Even good things, if we're not wise, can actually grow to become idolatrous. So in other words, I am so grateful that the conversation of justice has become ignited within the larger capital C church, even as debates happen. But I've also begun to see and glean that there are people, particularly younger people, and that's a wide, unfair generalization, just people in general, that we become so enamored by justice that it begins to grow in itself. And if we're not careful, we worship justice and not a just God. That nuance makes the entire difference. Because if we forget the why behind what we do, then anything that we pursue becomes idolatrous or has the capacity to become idolatrous. So another way to put it is, uh, we thank God for the gifts that God gives us but we don't worship gifts, we worship the giver of gifts. So there's a tension within the church right now where you have believers who altogether think justice is a socialist, Marxist, whatever word you want to use, there are some Christians who think justice is a dangerous thing, it's an agenda, and therefore should not be talked about in the church. And then there might be some who become so enamored by this that we forget the giver, the just God. But somewhere in here is all of us, God calls us to be women and men as part of our spiritual formation, even in a time of chaos, conflict, and challenge, to be women and men who pursue justice. One last thing, because in case I've not convinced you in my really short introduction before we get into this text. Let me just give you one more illustration, and then we'll just share one text to talk about what it means, particularly around reconciliation. Uh, for folks in the back, I'm not sure if you can see this, uh, but 
I've got a, a stand, a music stand right here on stage. And on this music stand, I want you to imagine a box. And in this box, this box represents God. Just, just use your imagination. Now, I know you're not supposed to put God in a box, so just email Dave Burns. So we've got this box here, and it represents God. And what if I were to somehow extract love out of God's character? Now, clearly, you and I, all of us, should be upset because how can we understand God, know God, worship God, apart from love? You would, and rightfully so, demand that Eugene Cho never be invited back to Mount Hermon. That was just a, a joke. Please don't take that seriously. What if we were to extract grace out of God's character and toss it aside? Again, the only reason why you and I, think about this, the only reason why you and I woke up this morning to have breath is because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to extract holy or holiness out of God's character, and I know the word holiness is not a word that we often speak about, certainly in culture, but even sometimes within the church. But I want you to know you cannot fully understand God apart from acknowledging a glimpse of the holiness of God. The, the, the prophet Isaiah, in his human finitude, trying to grasp the infinitude of God, the only thing that Isaiah can do is simply repeat himself, you are holy, holy, holy. So my question to the church, even amid all the political, cultural craziness and tension, is what happened that we've extracted justice out of God's character, tossed it aside, and called it an agenda. Be careful not to be more influenced by our media political pundits than we are by the word of God. I, the Lord, love justice. That may have been the longest introduction to our sermon I've ever given. But now we have limited time, so let's get into this. If you have your Bibles with you, John chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, and I want to read this scripture, and because of limited time, we're not going to be able to do a sound, solid exegesis, but we'll try our best. Now... Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 4, I'm going to read that one more time because I think this is one of the most critical verses. Now, he had to go through Samaria. I want to begin by just acknowledging that Jesus didn't have to do anything, right? Because he's God. Every now and then, we have to realize that, yes, while Jesus, fully God, chooses to be fully human, he never relinquishes his identity as fully God who chose to be fully human. So an example of this is that when Jesus asks questions in the Gospels, it's not because Jesus doesn't know. Right? When Jesus says, for example, when this bleeding woman is worming, working through the crowd in her mind who's been sick for 12 years for internal bleeding, as she's working, worming through the crowd, thinking, if only I can touch Jesus, I will be healed. She gets touched. She touches Jesus and she heals. And Jesus asks a ridiculous question. Jesus, what? Who touched me? Why is it ridiculous? Because you're Jesus. I mean, seriously, do you think Jesus responded like this? Like, ah! Who touched me? I'm a perfect introvert. Who touched me? I mean, Jesus absolutely knew. So when Jesus asks questions, it's never for his benefit. It's for the benefit of others. Now, we'll get back to that story. So here in John 4, verse 4, now he had, he didn't have to do anything. He's trying to tell us something, a glimpse of the kingdom of God. The first point that I would love for you to learn here is that you have to walk through Samaria. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, why is this significant? The only way I can illustrate this is to give you a visual map. So let's bring up the map. This is the only visual that I'll have to share today. Scripture tells us that Jesus and the disciples, they're in the southern region of the maps that you see in the back of your Bibles. So they're around the Judea region, and Scripture says that they have to head up north to Galilee. Now, friends, please, I'm not a PhD or a rocket scientist, but I know that the fastest way from point A to point B is a straight line. But during the times of Jesus, and not just during these times, for centuries and generations, people that were Jewish, they chose not to go in a straight line. Typically what happened is that they would travel east, and you see the Jordan River on the right side of the map. They would actually cross the Jordan River Because the Jordan River served as a a more natural barrier to protect themselves from a group of people that occupied a region of land called Samaria, and they were called Samaritans. Now, scholars tell us that this route took about three times longer than a straight line. 
And the reason, again, why they took a circuitous route was, again, we don't have the time to go into it, but because of conflict that began to ensue, I believe it was in 1 Kings chapter 17, and it festered for generations upon generations upon generations, is that they chose to ignore and altogether avoid Samaria. This is the reason why in Scripture, and we'll get into this, but that's really the first point that I want you to understand is that Jesus, for those reasons, he says we must walk through Samaria. Is this as if Jesus went through Samaria with this determined, resolute mind to break down barriers of hatred, cultural, ethnic, racial prejudice, to replace these by what? The kingdom of God. Forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, love and hope, and the list goes on. I love the words of St. Francis of Assisi. In one of his writings, he says, quote, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. I would contend to you that Jesus' walk through Samaria is an example of what I articulate as the whole gospel. The whole gospel constitutes Jesus' walk to Calvary. May we never abandon the good news that Jesus invites, forgives sinners like you and I. May we never be lukewarm and tepid about sharing this good news that Jesus saves. So Jesus' walk to Samaria is part of Jesus' walk to Calvary is part of this whole gospel. But in addition to this, Jesus' walk through Samaria gives us an imagination of what this kingdom of God is about. Both of these constituting the whole gospel. The great commission and the great commandment. That's the first thing. You see, back then, I can simply imagine the disciples, when Jesus said, we're going to walk through Samaria, it's not recorded here, but if I, I feel like I know the disciples enough for them to respond, probably saying, are you crazy? Are you insane? Do you not understand the geopolitical, social, cultural dynamics between us and Samaritans? Now, I'm going to get into the Samaritans. But one of the first things that we have to learn as followers of Jesus is that you can't just talk about Samaria, retreat about Samaria, sing about Samaria, spit rhymes about Samaria, pray about Samaria, theologize about Samaria. You can do all of these things and still not walk through Samaria. This is a challenging word. And I'm not suggesting that you and I are called to save the world. That's a dangerous messianic savior complex. But I do believe God is calling every single one of us to love justice, walk humbly, and love mercy. Every single one of us. And what does that look like in your life? Especially in a world that is gone crazy, chaotic, conflict, all of that stuff. Here's the second thing that we can learn, and it's this. Our call as Christians is to humanize the dehumanized. 
So I don't care what your theological bent is. For us as followers of Jesus, we believe that every single human being is created in the image of God. Whenever I have this conversation or debate with someone, people respond back by saying, how about this? And how about that person? How about this person? And my response is, what about every single person is muddy? Like, I didn't say it was easy. Listen, I'm not suggesting that loving every single person is easy. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, though, that every single human being including those that don't look like you, think like you, feel like you, cheer like you, worship like you, and let's just say it, even those that don't vote like you. (gasps) Dave Burns at gmail.com. You stop that. Oh, sorry. Oh. (laughs) Dave is going to have like 200 emails. All in love. (laughs) That every single person matters. So let's go back to the Samaritans. The reason why Jesus intentionally uses numerous Samaritans as part of his teachings, not just in parables, but in real life teaching, is because Samaritans were dehumanized. And not only were they dehumanized, but when it begins to go on for centuries at a time, you'll find people saying, I hate Samaritans, and they don't even know why, because it's been so ingrained in the larger systemic structural craziness of it all. Having had a chance to spend intimate time both in Israel and Palestine, and having conversations with people there When I ask him, why is it that you hate the other? And the answer is, I don't know. That's what I've been told. So Samaritans were considered not fully equal, dirty, unclean, inferior, half-breeds, contaminated, lesser than. And as a result... They were otherized and villainized, leading to deep-seated division. And at times, if you dehumanize people, then it leads to the justification of words, treatment, prejudice, racism, abuse, and the list goes on. So let me give you a couple examples historically. During World War II, Nazis referred to Jews as rats. Do you know, historically speaking, and I write about this in my research for my book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, that 93% of the Christian church supported the Nazi movement. Just in case you may have missed what I just said, 93%. In Rwanda, and I was just there about two years ago, three years ago, right before the pandemic, marking their 25th anniversary of this horrific Rwandan genocide, Hutus called Tutsis cockroaches. Millions of human beings died. One million human beings. 
enslaved African Americans were compared to apes or monkeys. Today, you hear radical monks called the Rohingya minority group simply animals or beasts. You see, words matter because words inform worldviews. Worldviews inform hearts. Combined, they form the way we interact and intersect with people. Do not dehumanize people. I think one of the most scandalous things that Jesus does. I mean, we can talk miracle about miracle about miracle that Jesus, supernatural miracles, right? But the thing about Jesus, when I read the Gospels that just so captivate my imagination about the kingdom of God is that he chooses to acknowledge every human being. The woman who is suffering from internal bleeding. Jesus says, who touched me? Why would Jesus ask that question? Because Jesus wanted this woman, the disciples, every single person in the crowd, men and women, to know that in the kingdom of God, Jesus says to this woman, I see you. And it's pretty powerful. The Samaritan woman at the well, she says what? Um, this is awkward. My translation, she says, you, um, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, this is not supposed to happen. And Jesus says, I see you. He speaks truth, but he acknowledges her humanity. You see, this is the reason why religious leaders, when they prayed out in public, and listen, Jesus is not against us praying in public. He's against us praying in public for the sake of being seen praying in public. Those are two very different things. So here are these religious leaders. They have their hands up, and at least three times a day, they were known for their daily prayers of gratitude. And in their daily prayers of gratitude, they thank God, they thank Yahweh for three specific things. They would say, God, thank you that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. God, thank you that I am a free person and not a slave. God, thank you that I am a man and not a woman. Which is the reason why, when you look at this Samaritan woman, she basically had three strikes against her. Galatians 3.28, Paul inspired words about the amazing, upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but we are one in Christ Jesus. That's powerful. And I think about the invitation for us as Christians in these crazy times where everything feels like either you're for me or against me. You're an ally or an enemy. Where we have to walk a different path. And what's that path? It's the way of Christ. Which means from a cultural perspective to some, you're just way too conservative. To others, you're way too liberal. 
but our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Man, I hope some of you are just quiet Pentecostals and you're saying amen in your hearts. So let's go a little bit closer and dive. I'm going to close with these last two points. I'm going to spend 15 minutes, and this is going to be important. In our work for justice, we got to realize that relationships matter to Jesus and therefore must matter to the people of God. And we see this in the Gospels. Jesus breaks down barriers. I would even make a case that the Pharisees decided to conspire against Jesus in part because A, he wasn't willing to play their religious game, but B, he was choosing to break bread with people he was not supposed to break bread with. Levi, I'm coming over to your house to have a meal. Mary and Martha. In fact, the question that they often ask is, do you know who these people are? Jesus, of course. That's exactly the point. So here we are in our culture and society. We're trying to have all of these intense debates and discussions and teachings and such about complex matters and I realize that for some of us, maybe many of us, as followers of Jesus, they become more theological exercises than actually embodied life. So let me explain it this way. You cannot love your neighbors if you don't know your neighbors. Anything outside of that, it's theological gymnastics. It's nebulous concept. That's the reason why Jesus says what? Now, he had to go through Samaria. Let me give you a more practical um, exercise. After the death of Michael Brown, and I want to be careful how I say this because I always get emails about this. After the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, they conducted a survey, they conducted a survey, and I know surveys are always incomplete, right? But in this survey, they asked Americans around the country about the nature of their friendships. So Steve yesterday just shared with us the beauty of these redwood trees and how they're able to thrive in community. So in a 100-friend scenario, the average white person has 91 white friends, one each a black, one Latino, one Asian, one mixed race, and other races. The average black person, on the other hand, has 83 black friends, eight white friends. Now, part of this makes sense just because of sheer differences in numbers, two Latino friends, Zero Asian friends, what's up with that? Three mixed race friends, one other race friend, and four friends of unknown race. 
for Asian Americans happens to be very similar with white Americans, very insular. So here's my challenge. We're having these complex conversations about justice, about race, about reconciliation, and we actually don't know people. And our churches can be so homogenized that everything is more, we're more informed by what we read on the larger news. As a result of the spike of anti-Asian hate and violence this past year, another survey discovered, and this was shocking, painful, but at the same time not surprising, they found out that 42% of people in the United States they could not name one Asian American. 42%. So it almost feels as if I'm just a walking blob. A good walking blob, but just a walking blob. So my charge to you is that when people say, gosh, everything feels so overwhelming and I get it, what can we do we can do this by acknowledging that God loves justice. We begin to humanize every single being. And we ask God for this commitment and the pursuance of building friendships and relationships. Not a one-time thing. Not like, hey, uh, I don't know who you are, but can you share your, your intimate stories and pain and trauma with me? But a commitment to build relationship over time. It's absolutely critical. Now, I'm going to just share a couple more things. Last thing that I'll share, and I'll kind of close here. So, relationships matter, but I want to give some attention to why systemic and structural injustice also matter. Now, again, please don't get triggered. I'm not talking about like CRT or whatever it might be. I'm just, I want to give a reason why I believe structural injustice matters. Okay. Um, so let me see if I can just get a couple folks to, to help me out. Three of you guys, you guys mind if you guys just came up on stage? Would you guys mind, Trent? Yeah, just come on up. And um, let, let me see if I can, if this makes some sense. Um, just because you were in the front. Um, so, so go ahead and just stand right there. So, you know, my brother here, Jack, he just acknowledged hey, three white guys. That's not my point, but let, let me just see if I can. And maybe it might be, but let me see if I can make this ha happen. So, as human beings, anthropologists would argue with us that one of the most Amazing things about human beings is our capacity to create culture. So when human beings gather together, the four of us, we eventually begin to figure out a way how we interact with one another, how we talk, how we hang out, and then we begin to produce culture, music, art, medicine, uh, architecture, and, and the list goes on. Now, if Jack is like me, and Taylor is like me, and Trent is like me, even if we have good intentions, our tendency is to do what? We're going to create culture that does what? 
it benefits us. That's not a criticism of them, it's natural human inclination. So we're going to create culture that benefits us. Now, as a result, there are good culture we can create, but we have to also acknowledge there might be bad culture, even potentially unjust culture, or even ungodly culture. The traditional Christian response is, well, uh, all they need is Jesus. Now, of course, I truly believe that. So let's just say, and we'll move this aside for a second, let's just say, you know what? Uh, the four of us gather together, let's kind of huddle up a little bit, and we create our own culture. And then you say, you know what? All we need, look at that. I mean, without even talking, we created a, we created a bromance culture right there. And so, so after this happens, you say, well, all they need is Jesus. The jack comes off to the side, goes to Mount Hermon, hears Steve's preaching, encounters Jesus, praise God, he becomes a follower of Jesus. And we should celebrate this. Now, having said that, though, while we celebrate this, he might come back into this larger cultural context. And while we acknowledge that his heart has changed, it doesn't always mean that systems and a structure and a culture that's been created has been redeemed for God's glory. You see, sinful people create sinful systems. This is the reason why we have, as Christians, we should always have room and imagination for God to redeem systems and structures and principalities and never, ever relinquish the importance of human beings, their hearts changing. Now, just stay here just for a moment. Here's why both needs to happen. Let's say system structures change. Right now, it's 10, 11. I've got four minutes. Let's say at noon today, at 12 o'clock today, God answers all of our prayers of redeeming, healing, reconciling all structural injustice in the world. Racism, sexism, misogyny, patriarchy, economic injustice, like everything that we can imagine, boom, this amazing jubilee, God restores all things at 12 o'clock. It's going to be the greatest lunch ever. Here's the reason why Christians, we should never abandon the importance of hearts changing. Why? Because at 12.01, it begins all over again. You see what I'm trying to say? This is why I get concerned by followers of Jesus overemphasizing structural change and they abandon the importance of people having a personal encounter and repenting to Jesus and at the same time people only acknowledging this and not acknowledging the complicity sometimes we as Christians knowingly or unknowingly perpetuating unjust systems. Guys, thank you guys so much. Can you guys have a seat? Thank you. Let's give them a big hand. Uh, we are starting a boy band today. Um, so let me close with this. Uh, I decided not to show this image 
because it's very disturbing. And I, I just didn't think it was appropriate, but there's an image that I sometimes use when I give this sermon. I thought it was from the 1920s or 30s. It's from the 1960s. I thought it was from the South, but it's actually from the West Coast, from Portland. And it's an image of an altar at a church. The last time I checked it out really closely, there was probably about 50 or 60 men in their hoods, a KKK rally, at a church with the largest sign of these words I have ever seen at a church, even today, and it's the words, Jesus saves. This is why our spiritual formation should never just be about internal, but also when we say God has called us to be light and salt. So my, my challenge to you, and Steve will help connect the dots and challenge us more in the second session, what does it mean for you wherever God has planted you to walk through Samaria. May God give you courage and may we always do it in the spirit of love. So Father, thank you again so much for this time, for my sisters and brothers, for ears to hear, for hearts to be molded. God, our desire is not to be played by the forces of our cultural winds, but be women and men, families rooted in the word of God, in the ways of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly. All for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.